This week I've been thinking, <laughs> Bob said, uh-oh. <laughs> now you sound like Carolyn. Uh-oh. I've been thinking about a couple of things that are dangerous to us as human beings. One of them is a lack of knowledge. Lack of knowing what is true. I don't know if any of you have read a book by Darrow Miller. He's written a couple awesome books about God's kingdom. And he was looking at education in the United States and how slowly but surely our students in the United States have been dropping and how they measure up against other cultures in the world. And there's a lot of reasons we could look at for that. Darrow Miller kind of cuts to the heart. And he says, look, for decades, many have been teaching our children that you can't know absolute truth. You can't know what's true. There is no absolute truth. He says, hey, if kids believe that, that they can't know what's absolutely true, what in the world is their motivation to learn? Why try to learn if I can't know what's true? Well, I'm here to tell you this morning, we believe we can know what's true. I have a God who spoke to us through his word and gave us absolute truth, a bedrock foundation. So lack of knowledge is one thing. The second danger I've been thinking about is it's also possible to know what's true and to go against the reality of what's true. We know going against reality is dangerous just by the news headlines off of I-17 the past year or two, don't we? How many times have we heard that somebody gets on a ramp going the wrong way and within minutes lives are gone, destruction happens because someone is going against reality? Every time we drive down to Phoenix now, I do not take my eyes off the road because I'm not only concerned about the people traveling with me, I'm, I'm afraid some guy's going to hit me head on. It's happened seven or eight times. Lack of knowledge and going against what we know to be true are both very dangerous things. The second one, I would define as pride. There's a way that looks right to a man, but in the end, it leads to what? death. As I thought about this, I've, I've thought about a couple foundational truths. One, I believe in a creator and a creation. Listen to this, a creator is one who creates, and he has the right to define a number of things. When life begins, gender, appropriate behavior, and how to have a relationship with the creator. The creator has the right to decide all of those things because he is the creator. Then there's the creation, one who is created, all of us, and is responsible to honor the creator's right. Two foundational truths that are slipping away. A couple years ago, I thought about how do we speak this to a culture that often doesn't believe in absolute truth? And one of the ways I think we can do that is to enter into dialogue, a conversation. And I wrote this little piece called, Is It Possible? This is helpful to me. I don't know if it might be helpful to you as you talk with other folks who maybe don't believe in absolute truth. Start with the question, is it possible? Is it possible that humans are created beings? 
Does it make sense that created beings would be subject to the one who created them? Let's have this dialogue over coffee. Is it possible that created beings disobeyed the Creator's will and broke that relationship? Is that possible? Is it possible that the Creator knows more than the created beings? Is it possible that the Creator sent a message to let the created beings know the way back? Would the Creator have the right to spell out what that return required? Would the Creator have the right to promise blessing upon those who honored that path back? and punishment to those who did not? Is it possible that the Creator would say there's only one way back? If someone showed up on earth and claimed that belief in himself was the only way back to a relationship with the Creator, what sort of proof should be required of the one making that claim? Is there anyone who's made those claims? Is there anyone who's shown proof to back those claims up? And if there is, what is the logical response of creative beings to that one? Jesus dealt with some of these issues head on. You guys know many of his conversations started when somebody asked him a question. Some of the best conversations in life do. That's why Peter says, be ready. Jesus is a great example of that. So many along the way moments. It wasn't usually Sunday morning where he had a half-hour sermon, he's just along the highways and byways of life, and someone asks him a question, and boom! Let me share some truth from God with you. Peter says, we need to be ready for that. Jesus, of course, was the master. And I called this first part of the message a little less conversation, a little more action, please. <laughs> I remember when I worked at the Heights Church, I shared an office with a guy named Andy Myers, who introduced me to a couple things. Apple, computers, Macs, iTunes, and uh, a love for several bands that I'd never been into before. U2. Justin knows Andy was crazy about U2. Loved some of their music. Also, he, he showed me some Elvis songs that I had never heard. And this was one of them. I remember working on messages for the young adults, listening to a little less conversation, a little more action, please. <laughs> That's some of what I see Jesus getting at in this first part of the conversation. Luke 13, 22. And Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? What a big question, huh? How many of you have wondered that? How many people are going to be made right with God? How many people are going to spend eternity with God? How many? Instead of answering with a specific number or this percentage or that percentage, Jesus is going to take it from the theoretical to the very personal. He's going to say this in verse 24. He looks at the man and says, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Instead of dealing with big truths out here, he looks the man in the eye and says, let's talk about you. You make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Pastor Warren Wearsby in Chicago used to talk about how people would love to talk with him about big theological concepts like, are people predestined for salvation? And things like that. And often in his response, sometimes it was by letter, he would write back and he would talk about those issues, but he would also ask that individual about their own life. Talk to me about your relationship with Jesus. 
uh, talk to me about your time in the Word and your prayer. And are you witnessing to bring more into the kingdom? He said he rarely got responses back. Why is that? Because it's easy to talk about things in the theoretical that are out here, but when it comes back home, it gets a little more uncomfortable, right? Jesus wants to drive it back home because he cares about this man. He cares about him deeply. So he says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. So those of you who know your Bibles, right off the bat we're thinking, wait, wait a second. This make every effort does not line up well with some of what I know about grace. Because I know Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. So what in the world does it mean to make every effort to enter the narrow gate? Well, sometimes it helps to go back to the Greek. The word is agonizomai. What English word do you hear in there? Agonize. Other words that we could define it with are strive or fight. It was an athletic term. You think of an MMA fighter in the ring, fighting, giving it all they got. That's what the word means. So what does it mean to strive to enter the narrow gate if we believe in grace? Thomas Constable broke it down this way. He says, striving refers to believing Jesus, despite the difficulty of believing and the opposition from others say, how is it difficult to believe? Well, it's difficult for a couple reasons. One, I got my pride that says I'm good, all right? I don't need grace. I'm good enough. We've also got what those other people around us will think. We've seen our culture shifting, right? Slowly but surely, Christians are being denigrated more and more in our culture relegated to the sidelines of discussion at the moment they say I believe in Jesus as my Savior so we think about that there's the pride there's what others would think striving is a great word because honestly we can't do this on our own it requires the power of the Spirit in us to convict us help us to see our sin and believe in Jesus despite everything around us that's what striving means and Jesus talked to many people that would not take that step in their will. That's what it comes down to, a step in the will, right? You can have a mind that's instructed by the Word. You can have a heart that's been moved by miracles and God's working that you've seen. But if your will would not submit to the offer of the Gospel, you're not saved. John 6, the people asked Jesus, what must we do to do the works God requires. And here's where all of us who love checklists are like, awesome, I'm ready to write this down, right? I gotta go to church, I gotta tithe, I gotta put it on there, I gotta help somebody across the street. What is it? What are the works God requires? Jesus' answer, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Period. All that other good stuff flows out of that. So then we want to ask, how narrow is narrow? Right? Eric sent me an article titled that very thing this week. How narrow is narrow? It's this narrow, John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He says, it's only through trust in me. 
that anyone has a relationship with the Father. Now, our human pride rails against that, doesn't it? We say, no, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to go through another religion. I'm going to go through man-made rules that I've made up, my self-effort. I'm a hard-working American. I've never been on welfare. Gave a little to charity. That ought to get me in. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Now, we know this in other areas of life, right? Marco and his wife just moved to town, and they're interested in joining our missional community. And They asked me, what's your address? And I told them our address. Now, can you imagine if they went to a different address and knocked on the door and said, hey, I'm here for the missional community. What are the people inside going to do? Bam! Now, Marco and Angela can stand there all they want and say, I want to get into the missional community. Are the people inside going to let them in? No, why? Because they're at the wrong address. We know that if they don't show up at the right address, they're not getting in. Cedar Point Roller Coaster Park. I told you we went there earlier this year. One of the roller coasters there is called the Top Thrill Dragster. Over 400 feet tall, over 100 miles an hour. Line for that is often very long, you know, as you can imagine. It's, it's an awesome ride, an hour or two hours. There's other things like the Tilt-A-Whirl that every... Every place has. The line's like five minutes. Imagine I go to Cedar Point and I get in the tilt-a-whirl line and I get up to the front and I tell the lady I want to ride the top thrill dragster. She says, sir, this is the tilt-a-whirl. I don't care. I, I want to ride the top thrill dragster. She says, sir, you've got to wait in the top thrill dragster line to get on the top thrill dragster, right? We know all this in, in everyday life. So why do we rail against it, this idea that there could be one way to the Father? Jesus said there is one way, and it's me. He says this, Many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. How is that possible? Well, these are people, like we mentioned earlier, that try to get there their own way, right? They try to get there through their works, through their list of accomplishments, through a false religion. They won't get in. So the, the practical question for the man and for us is, have you gone through the narrow gate? Matthew seven thirteen to 15, passage that led my father-in-law to salvation. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. It's easy to find the road to destruction, and it may be very comfortable until you get there, and it's too late. The narrow road is narrow. He goes on. Make another point. Time is ticking. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you'll stand outside knocking and pleading. Sir, open the door for us. Jesus is saying there is a day coming where the door will be closed for good. Hebrews 9 says it this way, it's appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. That's when the door is closed. The moment you pass into eternity, when you die, the door is closed. And though you plead, 
the door will not open. How many of you like classical guitar? Any of you listen to that while you work, study? I love it. There was a Spanish composer named Manuel de Falla. He was notorious for not answering people's letters. You got anybody like that in your life? You send them an email or a letter and you never <laughs> hear back from them? That was Manuel de Falla. And one day, he was going through a stack of mail. He had just heard that a, a friend had died. And he was going through a stack of mail. And he said, what a pity. He died before I answered his letter, which he sent me five years ago. Well, that's a pity, but let me tell you about a tragedy. What if we die before we answer God's letter of love? His good news that there's a way to be saved. That's a real tragedy. Have you answered that letter from God of good news by trusting in Jesus Christ? I hope you have. Do not wait until you die and the door is closed. Please do not. Next section I call it, it's all about who you know. The guy inside the house, it says, he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you'll say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evil doers. What are these people knocking, saying? They're saying, hey, we hung out with you. You remember I was at that one party where I ate and drank with you? Remember I was in that one crowd listening to you on the hillside when you taught that, that sermon on the mount? When I was a pastor at the Heights, there were about 3,000 people there. And I knew some of them well. Had relationships with them, me and Carolyn. But there are other people that saw me up on stage. And sometimes when I'm in town and I see those people, they, came, they come up and say, Hi, how you doing? How you been? And, and I'm looking and I'm like, this face looks really kind of familiar. But often I just tell them, can you remind me what your name is? Because <laughs> you your face looks familiar. But I, and sometimes they understand, hey, there's 3,000 people. Other times they get a little offended. What, what's happening? They think they, they know me because I was up on stage and they heard me preach. But I'm thinking, I don't know anything about you. Obviously, that, that application has its weaknesses, but I hear Jesus saying that. These people, hey, just because you stood in a crowd and listened to me preach and ate with me does not mean you have a relationship with me. Today, it's the equivalent of someone standing there in eternity saying, I, I listen to sermons every week. I even listen to them online. I listen to them in my car. I, I read our daily bread. I, I read a couple works on theology. I know all about you, Jesus. And to some people who say those things, the really sad thing is he's going to say, I know you knew all about me, but you never knew we never had a relationship. Matthew 7, he says it this way. Many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, did, not, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? 
And I was on the setup team at church. I was in a small group. I had my neighbors over for parties and stuff, remember? I brought food to the food weeks. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. The heartfelt question from Jesus and from me this morning is, do you know Jesus? Have you trusted in his death on the cross for your sins? His resurrection for your victory in your life? Being in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. It's the way my friend Bob said it. This next section shows us that when we get in eternity, we're going to be surprised at who's there and who's not. Verse 28, he says to them, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. These people, for the people outside the door knocking. He's talking to this Jewish crowd. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, obviously grief. And, and it's this grief that I can't get in. And then the gnashing of teeth shows this anger that I can't get in, this pain. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. Many in this crowd, that was the absolute expectation. I'm part of the nation of Israel. I'm a child of Abraham. And one of my biggest goals is to sit at that feast in eternity with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. I mean, it was more intense for them than it is for my boy. Like, I would love to meet LeBron James and Steph Curry and sit down with them. This was their dream. And they just assumed that would be the case because they were part of the nation of Israel. They had a right to the covenant promises in their mind. So for Jesus to say, you look in there and see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but you yourselves thrown out. See him standing there like, it adds to it. He says, people will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. People from all over the world, Gentiles, who some of you Jews hate, will be at that feast. And you yourself will be outside the door if you do not trust in me. This is shocking to them. This can't be Jesus. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. He's saying, look, you guys assumed you were first because you're in the nation of Israel and that the Gentiles were last. I'm turning the tables over because it's all about who comes to personal faith in me as their Savior. These people counted on their status in the nation of Israel. And I look at our country and I think of it like this. There may be people standing on the outside of heaven saying things like, I was an American. Our Constitution was largely shaped by biblical truths. I, I voted conservative. I was married my whole life to one woman. I never cheated. I went to church every week. I tithe. And I believe fully there will be people who say these things that will be rejected the gates of heaven because they never embraced a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That ought to move us as a church. 
our primary reason here is to spread that word that you need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. There will be people that don't get in that will surprise us. There will be people that do get in that surprise us too. People like you and me that, that know of sins in our lives that Jesus has forgiven and restored and made whole. We've got stories of failure and brokenness and ways that we have turned our backs on God. And yet because we've come to a Savior of grace and mercy, we're there. In Jesus' day, it was the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners that knew their need for grace and embraced a Savior. Who are some of the people in your sphere that maybe, just maybe, you'll get to heaven and say, whoa, you're here? And who of those people might be there because you're the one to take them the message? There's going to be a lot of surprise there. I heard a joke about this. This guy shows up at the gates of heaven and St. Peter's standing there. And St. Peter asks him, what denomination? The man says, Methodist. St. Peter says, go to room 24, but be very quiet as you go past room. Another man arrives at the gates. And Peter says, denomination. He says, Lutheran. Peter says, go to room 18, but be very quiet as you go past room 8. The third man arrives. Peter says, what denomination? The guy says, Presbyterian. Go to room 11, but be very quiet as you pass room 8. The man says, Peter, I can understand there being different rooms for different denominations, but what's the deal with, with room 8? Peter says, well, the Baptists are in room 8, and they think they're the only ones here. <laughs> You could plug in any denomination. I have no animus towards Baptists. I grew, I grew up Baptist. But in a fun way. <laughs> that, that joke shows us that there's going to be some surprises as to who's in heaven, right? And who's not. Will you be surprised when you come to the gates? Or have you made your arrangements? That's a question Jesus would have us to all answer. Corinthians, Paul says, now is the day of salvation. There's a day when this door that's open, Jesus says, I'm the door, I'm the gate, it will close. The moment you die or the moment Jesus comes back, it's open today. Jesus goes on to talk more about his, his kingdom plan to welcome people into this narrow gate. I call this section, God's kingdom plan cannot be stopped. Listen to what he says. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, You go tell that fox. I'll keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day. For surely, no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Now, some of you have been wondering for a couple of years, what does the fox say? <laughs> Herod says he wants to kill you, and Jesus calls him a fox. Why does Jesus call him a fox? Well, proverbially, you know, foxes are these clever, mischievous, troublemaking animals, but there was even more to it in a Jewish culture. 
Foxes were insignificant. In Nehemiah's day, you'll remember, they were rebuilding a wall around Jerusalem, and the, the insult from the neighbors was, that wall's so weak, even a fox could knock it down. It was kind of like a slam. They were, they were insignificant. That's kind of what Jesus is saying about King Herod compared to King Jesus. He's nothing compared to me. He may be somewhat clever, but I will get my kingdom mission done. I will get to Jerusalem. I will die on the cross. I will rise again, and I will bring salvation to those who believe. And little King Herod ain't got nothing to say about it. Now think about that today in a changing world. Sometimes we put way too much emphasis on human leaders in other countries. Sometimes we put too much emphasis on human leaders in our own country. And I'm not saying don't be involved. Be involved. Vote biblically and according to how, how God leads you. Be involved. But put your ultimate hope in King Jesus. Isaiah says this in chapter 40 about God. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And his people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Jesus is saying, King Herod and no other king is going to stop my kingdom. I want to ask us as a church, do we share that confidence in God's kingdom? Do we have King Jesus way up here above all human rulers? Or have we brought him a little too close? In our Last thing I want to show you in this passage is the grief and love of Jesus for those who reject his offer of salvation. Verse 34, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. You know what this is? These are the, the words of a spurned lover. It's like in those Lifetime movies that Carolyn loves and I fall asleep during. The, <laughs> the, the guy has gone out of his way to, to get this woman's love and, and she spurns him. Jesus is the ultimate example of that. He, he was heading to a cross for these people and for you and I. He loved them so much. Many in that city, many in our country, maybe some in this room, rejected that. And he says, I, I long to gather you together. I long to care for you just like a mama hen cares for her chicks, but you wouldn't let me. And now your house is left to you desolate. They would be destroyed in A.D. 70 by the Romans, that city. Still, he holds out hope for the future. He says, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This refers not only 
to the triumphal entry while he was here the first time. There's going to be another triumphal entry that's real triumphal. He comes in not on a donkey, on a majestic horse as king of kings. And he's saying, I'm not done with you, nation of Israel, but many of you are going to miss out because you've rejected me. The question here is, how does Jesus' grief for those who reject him affect you? Do you share that when you look at our world? Do you have that same longing to take that message of the gospel and bring them in? I hope we do. I hope we're like Katrina who helped bring Jim in at Wendy's a week ago. He's now getting ready to take that next step of baptism. 72 years old. He got in before the door was closed. To celebrate. In 1997, there was a survey taken by U.S. News and World Report. And the survey said, who do you think is most likely to get into heaven? Here's how the numbers came out. Mother Teresa had a 79%. Oprah Winfrey had 66%. Michael Jordan, 65%. Colin Powell, 61 Dennis Rodman, 28 and O.J. Simpson, 19. The pastor who was referring to these statistics as I, I read, he said, it caused me to wonder how they rated the chances. Because I know there's only one way to heaven, and that is by the blood of Jesus Christ. Psalm 2, if you've never read it, Lee, Lee reminded me of that psalm a couple weeks ago. I've read it a couple times since you brought it up. It talks about the real king. King Jesus. The end of Psalm 2 says this about God's Son. It says, Kiss his Son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. What's that mean? Come to Jesus in repentance. Trust in him. Give him your life. Kiss him, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Thank God that psalm doesn't end there. Listen to the last one. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Those are the two choices we all have this morning. Take refuge in him or be sent to destruction by him. I see Jesus weeping over that city of Jerusalem. That ought to be our heart. My heart for each one in this room this morning is that you make that choice. During these next couple songs, I'll be in the back. If you've never made that decision and you'd like to, I want to talk to you about that. Most important decision you'll ever make. Father, I thank you that Jesus does not beat around the bush. Yes, the way is narrow in that it only comes through him. But he also says that you so love the world that you gave your only son, Father, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. That door may be narrow, but there's room for anyone who will believe. Now is the day of salvation. I pray, Father, that we would be a people passionate about spreading that. I pray again that if there's anyone in this room 
on the brink of that decision that today would be their day of salvation. Father, I pray that as we take our offering, it would be an act of worship to you, an act of trust, an act of gratitude for a Savior who gave it all. I thank you from an overflowing heart. In Jesus' name.